from the fourth chapter of St. Luke. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. This is our text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, dear friends. You heard it said there by St. Luke that he, Jesus, was full of the Holy Spirit. And indeed, our Lord Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, not simply from the day that he stepped forth dripping wet from the Jordan River where he had been baptized by John, when the Holy Spirit there lighted upon him, Scripture tells us, in the form of a dove, and the voice from heaven came that said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. But he also had been full of the Holy Spirit long before that, before he was conceived in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even before that, at the beginning of creation, when the Holy Spirit was hovering energetically and in a life-creating way over the face of the deep, creating all the life that would be, even before then, the Son of God was full of the Holy Spirit, for as our ancient creeds confess, and we confess with all of those who have gone before us, that the Holy Spirit indeed proceeds forth from the Father and from the Son, from everlasting to everlasting. God the Son in whom, Scripture says, the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Indeed, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And the same Holy Spirit now leads Jesus, the Son of God, in whom the deity fully dwells, into the wilderness. For interestingly, as it tells us in our text, a period of 40 days. 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Don't too hastily dismiss the 40-day idea there because it's significant. For 40 days he was there in the desert, an important number throughout the scriptures. In fact, wasn't it for 40 days that Noah heard the pelting of the rain upon the ark for 40 days and for 40 nights before finally the deluge came that destroyed the earth of old? Moses is 40 days, remember, on Mount Sinai where he's receiving the tablets of the law while down below the Israelites were even sinning then against the Lord by creating of gold, this golden calf that they made, resulting in Moses then having to go back into the mountain and intercede on their behalf for 40 days and for 40 nights. And later on when they refused to take the land even as the Lord had told them to do. It was Moses again that must go up into the mountain and he goes there for 40 days to intercede on behalf of the people of God. And what about those 40 years that they were wandering in the wilderness because they had not obeyed the Lord nor trusted in him? And then there were also the 40 days of Elijah in the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan to despair of God's love and of God's care for him. And then he was saved by the strength of an angel of the Lord who came to him and strengthened him there and encouraged him to go forth and to go on. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Remember the prophet Jonah said, as he's standing there in his bleached, Acidy, gastric stench of that great fish that had swallowed him, Scripture tells us, that had then belched him out on shore. 
And the city of Nineveh, having heard the preaching of the word of God by Jonah, does indeed repent in sackcloth and in ashes. Sounds awfully Lentish, doesn't it? Like the season of Lent. Ashes, repentance, sackcloth, 40. No matter where you look throughout scripture, this number 40 seems to link us to a time of testing, a time of trial, a time of temptation. A time of temptation where man, as you go throughout the annals of history, where man has always, on the virtue of his own strength and his own power, man always fails. Man has always come up lacking. Man has always failed in the wilderness of temptation. He's always come up short in his struggle against Satan's beguiling power. Even the great British author and the poet Rudyard Kipling picked up on that when he wrote, we have 40 million reasons for failure, but not a single excuse. 40. Failure. It seemed to go hand in hand. 40. Failure in the face of the old evil foe. That's what we sang in that Reformation hymn that we just sang that Luther wrote. A mighty fortress is our God, and we refer there as he did to the old evil foe, and that's exactly who Satan is, isn't he? Old indeed, having successfully deceived our first parents, Adam and Eve, and all their progeny after them, generation after generation, each individual who tried to face him on his own, slipping like Eve did, sliding as Eve did, yielding as she and Adam did to temptations seditious and to its seductive power. No mere mortal has ever stood successfully before the old, experienced, evil foe. And he is indeed as evil as he is old. Jesus calls him the father of lies, the one in whom, Jesus says, there is no truth. The destroyer of souls, he's called. The murderer, Jesus says, from the beginning. He's the ultimate evil indeed. And he's not just, as some in our day would say, the literary personification of evil. This is a real personal entity, a real personal personality, a being with whom our Lord Jesus speaks, as we heard him today speaking in the wilderness. Either he was a real personal being or Jesus was speaking to himself. He was a personal being. He is a personal being who is out to tempt and to destroy ultimately that which God has made. Our old evil foe, our enemy, Scripture calls him, our adversary, the one who stands against you, the one who points his finger at you and accuses you. In fact, in the oldest Old Testament writing, in the book of Job, that's exactly what Satan is called. He's called by Job the accuser. And all the way through the scripture to the very last book, the book of Revelation, the last inspired book to be written, even there, the angel in the book of Revelation refers to Satan as being the accuser, whom he says, accuses our brothers day and night before the throne of God. Your adversary, 
The devil, St. Peter calls him, and little wonder then that Luther wrote of him saying, the old evil foe now means you, deadly woe, deep guile, great might, are his dread arms in fight, on earth is not his equal. No man on earth, no mere mortal, can stand alone against this old evil foe. And so as these 40 days begin, our 40 days of Lent, we most fervently pray as our Lord Jesus taught us in the last petition of his holy prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Luther says of this, don't, don't misunderstand there what Jesus is saying when he says, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Luther says, don't misunderstand this. God indeed, he says, tempts no one. But we pray in this petition that God would guard us and keep us, he says, so that the devil, the world, and our own flesh may not deceive us, nor seduce us into misbelief, into despair, or into any other shame or vice, and though we be assailed by them, that still we may finally overcome them, and we may finally obtain the victory. Quote, unquote, Luther. Or as we sang in the second verse of Luther's great Reformation hymn, but for us fights the valiant one. Whom God himself elected, ask ye, who is this? Jesus Christ it is. Of Sabbath, heaven's hosts, the Lord. There is none other God. He holds the field forever. And so now as the 40 days begin, those days wherein we're reminded by God of how hopeless the battle is without his Son, without Jesus Christ at the forefront going on before us, into the wilderness where men and women who have gone in their own strength and depending only on their own strength have always failed God because they think they can go it on their own without him. In what wilderness has man failed the Father? In what wilderness perhaps have you failed the Father? And I know I failed him in one of these wildernesses as well as more as well. Perhaps it's the wilderness of want. That wilderness where you found yourself without those things in the world that you really thought you needed. The absolute essentials, you would say. The basic necessities of life when you've worried about getting them. And you, you've worked so hard to attain them. You've focused all of your attention on getting those basic necessities of life. Those things that we might call the bread. Give us this day our daily bread, we even pray in the perfect prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us. And you hungered so greatly for and worried so much about attaining that daily bread, the acquiring of it, the consuming of it, the maintaining of it, becoming such an important priority for you in life that it has left little or no room in life where you're nourished by the bread of heaven which alone can feed your soul, a bread that is important to you as the, as the bread of earth to feed your body, because both body and soul are so important to God and to Christ, who indeed has acted to save them. Man does not live on bread alone, Jesus said, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Or perhaps if it's not that wilderness of want in which you found yourself so preoccupied with things, perhaps it's been the wilderness of, of power, the wilderness of glory. 
How many politicians and business executives and religious and sports personalities have been brought down by this wilderness of temptation, of power and glory? And it's not just the Lukakovichs or the Edwards or the Sanfords or the Matoffs or the Swaggarts and Haggarts and Woods of this world that have been brought down by the enticing things of this world. How many ordinary men and women have found the quest for recognition in their profession or the elevation to power and popularity among their peers, the positioning of themselves in their careers? How many have found that to be all-consuming, that driving force in their life that makes everything else even unworthy of consideration? To be able to control things, to be able to be on top of things, to have our own little kingdom over which we have control, not necessarily a whole kingdom dangling there before you, but just a little slice of one, to be able to control a part of one, a temptation like that will bring a lot of men and women to the bargaining table with the devil, and it's always dangerous, no matter how big the table might be, to dine with the devil. President's Day was last Monday. Our first president once said, quote, few men have the virtue to withstand the highest bidder. In essence, he's saying everyone has his price. Not just financiers in Wall Street, not just politicians in Washington or Sacramento or San Jose, not just entertainers in Hollywood, but ordinary men and women like us. We seem to have our prices too, it seems, who knowingly or unknowingly have sold themselves out to the one who St. Paul calls the God of this world, who offers them everything. St. John calls him the prince of this world. St. Peter refers to him as being a roaring lion who goes about seeking someone to devour. How many people have turned a deaf ear to the warning of our Lord when he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but then loses his soul? And yet, despite these warnings from Saints of old and our Savior himself, men and women, do it still, selling themselves out like Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. And if not for the wilderness of want or the wilderness of power and glory, how about the wilderness of confusion? The third one we sort of see in the text for today, that, that wilderness of confusion where the devil tries to play tricks with our, our minds, confusing issues, clouding the truth blurring the lines between right and wrong so that we compromise God's word in order to accommodate ourselves to the world around us. Or the wilderness confusion where the devil would blur the lines between what is and what isn't, what's real and what's not. Or between ourselves and God so that he would entice us to play God with ourselves or with others, taking matters into our own hands which belong only in the hands of God. That world where God says to us, trust me, believe what I say and trust me, and yet the devil comes to us and says, don't do it. Make him prove it. Step off the pinnacle into the air and make him prove it. Force the hand of God 
to move at your bidding or to prove himself a liar who does nothing as he sees you fall. Make him prove it. You see how the old evil foe works? In one way or the other, to one degree or the other, we've all wandered into one wilderness or the other. At one time or the other, we all, Isaiah says, like sheep have gone astray, each of us in our own way into the wilderness where we've come uncomfortably close to the old evil foe and found ourselves to be no match at all for the Lord of darkness. But believe it, dear friends, believe it. Satan has met his match. Satan has met his match in the wilderness. He met his match in his domain of darkness. He met him all alone, one-on-one. -on -one. He met him eye-to-eye -eye in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ who confronted Satan all alone, all alone in the wilderness where no one else in all of history had ever been able to successfully stand against Satan alone, but our Lord Jesus Christ did confront him and succeed against him alone, all alone, even as our Lord Jesus would confront him all alone with our sins on the cross at Calvary, forsaken even for our sake by God the Father, all alone with their adversary, Satan charging the cross, shouting out guilty, guilty. God the Father agreeing, yes, guilty, he is guilty. Why? Because he bears in himself the sins of all of the world, your sins and my sins. He is indeed guilty, the Father would say, and even the, the saints and the angels of heaven in chorus with the demons and the devils of hell, saying, yes, he is guilty because indeed he was, as he bore our sins upon the tree and was cursed for our sake that we might never be. Guilty he was in order that that word guilty might never ever be applied to you. That it might never stick to you. So that no one can call you guilty that God has called innocent, free, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, St. Paul says. So that when your heart, Scripture tells us, would condemn you, God is greater than your heart. And he has said of you, innocent, not guilty, because of what his own son has done. All because Jesus went alone into the wilderness to deliver you from evil. To do there for you what you could never have done for yourself, even as on the cross. He did for us what we never in a thousand lifetimes could have done for ourselves. And that's why the writer of Hebrews puts it so beautifully. And he says... We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. Rather, we have one who has been tempted in every way that we are, in every way, yet without sinning. And that high priest, of whom the writer speaks, is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, who went into the wilderness all alone for you. And there as a high priest also he would later in another wilderness on the cross he would offer himself up as a high priest offering up a sacrifice. He offers himself up also as the sacrifice itself for you. 
And he is even right now for you in the word that you hear and the supper that you so often receive. Any wonder that the writer of Hebrews continues and said, let us then approach now the throne of God's grace. How? Confidently. With confidence so that we may receive their mercy and find grace to help them in our time of need. Confidence in Christ before whom the devils shudder. Confidence in Christ before whom every evil trembles and every evil has met its match. A brief concluding news item from the Denver Post some time ago reads like this. Like many sheep ranchers in the West, Lexi Fowler has tried just about everything to stop crafty coyotes from killing all of her sheep. She has used odor sprays, electric fences, scare coyotes. She has slept with her lambs during the summer. She's placed battery-operated radios near them. She has corralled them at night. She's herded them at day. But the southern Montana rancher has lost scores of lambs, 50 lambs, last year alone. And then she discovered, the article says, then she discovered the llama. The aggressive, funny-looking, afraid-of-nothing llama. Llamas don't appear to be afraid of anything, she said. When they see something, they put their head up high and they simply walk straight toward it. That's aggressive behavior as far as the coyote is concerned, and they won't have anything to do with that. Coyotes are opportunists, and llamas take that opportunity away. Christ is with us taking away evil's opportunity. He goes before us, his head held high, clearing the way through this pilgrimage and this wilderness that we must go. And so we sing, O Christ, you walk the road, our wandering feet must go. Stay with us through temptation's hour to fight our ancient foe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.